Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists share what they have been working on. I'm Eric, and this week I am excited to share with you my conversation with Thomas Talhelm. Thomas is a professor in behavioral science at UChicago's Booth School of Business, where he studies how culture affects how people think and behave. Thomas builds much of his research on the five years he spent living in China, and his research has been covered in numerous places such as the Atlantic, National Geographic, Forbes, and the New York Times. We chatted about how both academics and non-academics might have adopted a somewhat mistaken understanding of collectivistic cultures, such as China. And I'll bring you my conversation with Thomas Talhelm. Today, I have the honor of speaking with Thomas Talhelm about an article called Why Your Understanding of Collectivism is Probably Wrong. First of all, thanks for coming on the podcast. And yeah. what is collectivism and why are we wrong about it? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, my, my basic idea here is that, uh, well, well, I was wrong. My idea of what collectivism was, was wrong. Um, and and I, I often think oftentimes in my life, if I get something wrong, other people are probably getting it wrong. And it, it was really motivated by sort of my image of what collectivism was before I ever sort of deeply experienced a collectivistic culture. Um, so I, I was an undergrad at the University of Michigan, and I was fortunate enough to be around some really great cultural psychologists, people like Shinobu Kitayama, um, Yuri Miyamoto, who's at Wisconsin right now, um, Richard Nesbitt was still there. Uh, at Michigan when I was there. Anyway, I, you know, I had an academic understanding, sort of basic understanding of, of culture. And I was reading these papers that were describing East Asia and, you know, sort of most cultures in the world as, as sort of interdependent and collectivistic. And it, it sounds really great. When you read these articles, it sounds like that's way better than what we have um, in the U.S. Uh, people rely on each other. Um, they feel connected to other people. Um, they're willing to help other people. Uh, and individualists seem kind of like jerks, uh, kind of like selfish people. Um, Want to do things my own, don't like to rely on other people. Uh, we self-inflate. In other words, like we think the self is really important. We have all these uh, beliefs about how we're way better than other people uh, on average and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's not like cultural psychologists are trying to say who's good and who's bad, but it it doesn't take much reading to to kind of get that like one sounds like everybody's great and everybody's getting along the other one sounds like people are kind of cold and and uh you know don't really want much to do with each other um and then i went to china um then i lived in china for several years uh kind of an accident i did not i had not studied chinese i uh, had never really been interested in china i i was a spanish major in college and so i studied spanish and portuguese but then this program where I was a research assistant, they just sent me to China. They told they told me I was going to China. So, I was, well, okay. So I started learning Chinese, started living in China. Um, I spent a total, by, by this point, I've been in China for seven years. I spent about seven years in China. And it, it happens pretty quickly to understand that collectivism here in China is not what I imagined it to be. Um, so that was 
that was sort of the start of of this idea. I really resonate with that. So I'm I'm, I'm from Germany, and I went to live in South America and Peru for a year uh, after high school and before college. So a similar, you know, time point. And part of why I went there, as opposed to you know, many other countries, I was like, oh, you know, they're all super cooperative and then nice and happy, and it must be a great place to be. And it truly is. I, I really enjoyed my time there, but it's certainly different from what I imagine it to be. And it's not just, you know, everyone holding hands in the street and dancing, you know, singing about how happy they are. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a truly different vision. So, so what is the academic conceptualization of collectivism and how is it too, uh, too naive about the yeah. reality of what it's Rosy, like? maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, I like your, I like your experience there because how you described your experience, because it, it really is complicated. I, I don't, I hope, I hope I'm not giving listeners the impression that like, I've lived in China and thought it was terrible, right? I mean, of, of course, I mean, I chose to live there for, for many, many years. There's so many cool things about China. Um, I continually choose to go back. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic place. Um, I love it. I just, I just see it as more complicated than, than what I thought originally or that what the image that people would have simply from reading research. Um, my favorite examples of this, though, is, was... So you ask, like, what is the academic image of, of collectivism? So when I started out as a, as a young researcher um, at Michigan, people kind of clued me in. There, there's this, maybe you've experienced this, Eric. There's, there's kind of like, there's the stuff you read in papers. And then there's this kind of, I don't want to say underground, but just person-to-person -person knowledge <laughs> that people share. And it's not always a secret per se, but just papers and academic writing is slow and conservative to more so than just what I might tell you in my experience, you know? So like I, for example, like I've used, um, you know, different manipulations in my research or different questionnaires. And then you might ask me like, Oh, did that one work for you? Or, you know, did it seem to have, you know, and I might add, ah, it didn't seem to work, but I don't write up, you know, academics don't write up every single thing that they uh, find. Right. Um, papers take a long time. <laughs> so uh, so there's this lag between what appears in the research and what people sort of know firsthand. And I was fortunate enough to be around people who had a lot of experience who could tell me about these things. One of the things that they told me about how to do research across cultures was to not use self-report scales and questionnaires. They told me, don't you, there's, there's all these questionnaires that researchers use. They want to measure collectivism. The easiest way to do that is to give people a questionnaire with simple items that they agree or disagree with. And it's, it's the totally logical place for any graduate student um, or just sort of first, first year researcher to start. Want to measure collectivism? Do Google search, find these scales, give those to people in different cultures. And that's where you, that's where you start. Totally makes sense. Uh, they're re reliable. Um, they, they pass measures of scale reliability, which just means that the items, they, they correlate with each other, um, as, as you might expect. But people knew that they didn't work. People told me that they didn't work, um, sort of secretly. And what they meant by doesn't work is there are cultures out there that we sort of think are collectivistic. Japan, China, India. Latin America, Latin America is kind of confusing because... It's got this sort of outgoing vibe to it, but, um, but, you know, collectivistic in some way. And when people would give these scales, these questionnaires to people in these different countries, 
oftentimes they would find that like Americans are more collectivistic or people in Japan score higher on individualism. It just doesn't seem to make sense with, with what we think sh- the world should be like. That's sort of the, that was sort of the entry into this, into this, uh, adventure into this, this, this rabbit hole. Yeah. And so you were saying that this academic understanding of collectivism conflicts with what you actually experienced in places like China. What, what are some of the experiences that you had in China where you were like, that's, that's different from what I imagine it to be? Yeah. Yeah. I guess let me start with what the scales say. Um, yeah. So there, there are a few items and I've, I've repeated these so many times. I, I have some of them memorized. Um, one of them is uh, the well-being of my coworkers is important to me. Um, to me, pleasure, I'm sorry, to me, spending time with other people is pleasure. Their pleasure is spending time with others. That's what it is. Um, uh, it is important to maintain harmony within my group. It's another one. Uh, the, the common theme among these items is it's about, a lot of them are about feeling good. A lot of them are about happiness. Um, I like spending time with other people. A lot of it is vague others. Um, so like coworkers, coworkers, how many of your coworkers are you really friends with? You really know, right? How many of your coworkers, do you know, their birthday, right? I mean, probably not many, right? And same thing with like, uh, to me, a pleasure is spending time with others, others. Who are these others, right? I would notice that the scales would use these, these really vague, um, relationships, right? The other people. Um, so it sounds like you're just saying people in general, right? Um, so that's, that's sort of the, the image here is it's collectivism is fun. It's nice. Um, and it, it's, it's sort of broadly applied to everybody, right? Um, the, the word itself, collectivism, it's got collective in it, which sounds like a big group of people to me, right? Um, so then what, what is, what is living in China? Like, um, it, it's, it's, some parts of, I think my experience there fit with that image and, and some, some didn't, right? Uh, one of my, uh, one, one experience that really made a deep impression on me. Um, so I lived in the, the old alleyways in Beijing. They're called hutongs. Uh, these are alleyways that some of them date back to the 1600s. Um, and uh, so I was living in one of these alleyways and to get out to the main street, I had to cross a an old man's small, um, small house. And I, I, sometimes I'd be walking by and he would shout out his door, uh, at me. He would say, um, he must've been in like the eighties. I would, I would guess eighties. Um, and it was funny because what he would call me, that means comrade. <laughs> and people don't really say that much anymore. So you could tell this guy was from another era. Um, people don't, people don't say comrade anymore. It used to be common. It's not common anymore. Um, and, and now it's actually slang for, for gay, uh, which is interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, he certainly did not mean that, (laughs) uh, with me, I think. Um, anyway, he's like, Hey, give me a hand. Like, Hey, I need some help. And so I go in and he'd say something like, Oh, I put water to boil on the stove. Can you go turn the stove off and pour the water for me? And it was clear that he was in pretty bad shape. Um, he didn't have, he would sometimes have the strength to get up and put the water on, but then not have the strength to go um, put it back. 
Um, another time I was walking into the Hutong and he was just kind of standing out on the sidewalk immobile. And I went over to him and it turns out that he was basically, he just ran out of energy and I had to very slowly step-by-step. It probably took 10, 15 minutes to go the 20 meters to his home. Um, so, and often this was a kind of an inconvenience if I could be honest, cause I was, I'm late to everything. And I was always like late running off the class. And then he, you know, asked me to go fetch the water. But anyway, one day I, I come back and I turn into the Hutong alley and I see him on the ground and there's blood coming from his head. He had fallen and was laying on the concrete. And there was a woman, I don't know, 15 meters away doing laundry in full view of this man who's hurt on the ground. And it was shocking to me. Like, why, why would you not assist this man? Like, and so I ran over and, and got help. And then I, um, I think I called a friend of mine from China and said, like, what would you do in this situation? Like, who can I contact? Um, and they said, oh, contact like the local uh, committee, uh, neighborhood committee, and you can get him help that way. Um, and I remember saying something to the woman who was just standing nearby in full, in full view of this man. I remember saying something to her, um, kind of rude, and, and to try to be like, hey, why, why aren't you helping? Um, it's, it's a sort of experiences like that. Um, you know, people, other visitors to China have noticed things like people uh, like littering on the street. Um, oftentimes there are signs in apartment buildings that say, um, like, don't throw garbage out the windows, mm. um, which is, it seems like not very collectivistic to, to litter like that. Uh, people mentioned pushing on the subways, um, fights for seats over on the subway, uh, not, not literal fights, but like people like rushing to like get, get these seats. Right. So all these things seem to be like elements that, that don't fit. Uh, collectivism. It seems like if collectivism is caring about people in general and sort of being nice, those pieces don't seem to fit. But there are pieces that do fit. Um, uh, people's connections to their parents, for example, very strong to me in, in my experience in China. People are very willing to sacrifice themselves for their friends or family. Um, of the friends that I've made in China, I've noticed that if I ask them for a favor, they don't even ask why. It's just, what do you need? And it's done. Whereas in America, I'm more used to kind of convincing my friends that I need their help mm. first and, and then they'll help me. Right. First, I have to explain the situation and why I need the help. And, and then they're willing to help me. But if I can't convince you, then it's kind of like, uh, right. But in China, it's like my friends, they didn't even care. It just wasn't a question. Just you need help. Okay. I'm there. Right. And so it's like, it, I don't want to say that I hope I'm not giving listeners again, the impression that like, uh, that people are, you know, across the board, um, just not nice. And that, cause it's not true. It, it, what, what I was coming to was the realization that it was just more complicated and that one of the important variables seemed to be, do you know that person? And do you have a connection to that person? Mm -hmm. Do you have duties and responsibilities to that person? Or if you notice in all those examples that I shared, who is the one that's getting treated poorly? Well, it's a stranger or at least somebody that you don't know, right? It's strangers on the subway. It's other people who are going to walk down the sidewalk that you don't know. 
Um, even in the Hutong experience there, you know, those people didn't really, although they're neighbors, they don't really know each other and don't really have a connection to each other, right? And so that's, that to me was one of the, the key things that I think was going on. And I noticed that in the scales, a lot of the items just said other people. And it seemed to me like, whoa, it really matters who that person is. So that was, those were some of the experiences that, that sort of tipped me off. And that seemed to be a disconnect from how the scales were written, how, how psychologists wanted to measure something and what life was, was actually like. It seems like a really crucial point to think about what people mean when they say other people, right? As you said, so it's, it's almost like we think about China and we're like, well, this is this country. And especially if we don't know any Chinese people, we're like, well, these are all the Chinese people. They all live there. It's one society. What do they care about? Well, society. Right? It's almost like this outgroup bias where it's like, we don't know anything about them. But then when somebody asks them, what do you care about? You know, well, some people would say my nation. And most people, though, will say, well, first of all, my family, my friends, and all these things. It's almost like this, this politician's bias where it's like, everyone cares about politics and everyone cares about the nation. It's like, well, everyone kind of cares. And some people care more and other people care less. But you know, most people just care about their, their, their family and their friends. And then there might be intercultural differences. But it, it just seems like this you know, somewhat uninformed view or, you know, um, well, we just don't know what, how people are different. And so we just categorize the entire outgroup and therefore we think that this is what the outgroup must be concerned about. Yeah, I, that, uh, that inspires two thoughts in me. One, one is the idea that I, I think part of the, the problem with the theories of collectivism is, is I wonder to what extent they were made sort of with Western assumptions. Because this assumption that you would treat a stranger somewhat similarly to a friend is, I don't want to say it's strictly true in the West, but there are studies that measure how people treat their friends versus strangers and what the gap is between that. There's also a scale called like the world is my in-group, um, where it basically says like, you know, somebody in Iraq, like I care about them, they're as much value as my mom, right? Like those are the same, the world is my in-group. I don't, I don't draw boundaries, right? Well, guess who identifies with that the most? Well, it's, it's individualists. If you are an individualist, you, you, you see these group boundaries as, as irrelevant, right? And so it's, it's, it's individualistic country. People from individualistic countries agree the most with those items, right? I, I remember in the, the refugee crisis a few years ago in Europe, um, with like lots of refugees coming from like Syria and also North Africa. Um, I remember, so this is in the news a lot. I remember going on, on Zhuhu, um, which is a question answer site in China, kind of like Quora, if anybody knows that. Um, people were incredulous in China. And, and these are like young, most, you know, pretty educated, you'd, you'd think would be pretty liberal people, um, incredulous that there was ever any question, you know, th th that that you should take care of people who are, have no connection to you, right? Like, no, the question is, those people should go back to where they came from was, was the, a dominant, I don't want to say the only attitude, but a dominant attitude in that, um, in, on, that, on that website. Uh, and it, to me, it's, I mean, it could sound really cruel, but I, I don't think it's actually as cruel as it might sound because you have to understand the the duties that people, the, the really tight duties that people feel towards close others. And, and it's hard for me to imagine a world where I can both be supremely responsible to the people around me 
and then also equally responsible to people that I've never met. I, I just don't know that, that that's, I mean, I'm sure psychologists can debate that question, but to me, it seems like you kind of have to do one or the other. Um, so that, that's how I balance that. So it's so, okay. So on the one hand, I think you've got this idea that, that maybe these, these theories of collectivism are, are wrong because it's, it's Westerners who themselves don't have a big distinction between friends and strangers um, who are then creating these theories. But on the other hand, I can tell you, I, so I've, I've had a lot of graduate students uh, or worked with, with graduate students from China. Um, I've talked to academics from China who've, who've you know, done, done research in China. And I can tell you, I, it, it's happened multiple times where a researcher from China who has a you know, deep experience with collectivism on the ground will do a study with a scale like that, with one of these classic scales. It's, how do I want to say this? It's possible to not notice, even with a deep experience, right? But when I give this talk about responsibilism, which I'm going to, we're, we're going to talk about today, when I talk about responsibilism and this, this distinction between friends and strangers and how that's, that's really what collectivism is about, it's not about loving everybody. When I give this talk in China, sometimes in Chinese, I see people's heads nodding. I see people going like, yeah. It, 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 the feeling to me seems like, you know what? I've never heard anybody say that quite like that, but you're right. Like it fits with my experience. So there's this weird thing where it's, you can have this rich experience, but if you don't think about it for a little bit, you can kind of get sucked in by these scales that without thinking about it really deeply, just say, you know, Hey, I love other people. And that's what collectivism is. Oh, I thought of another one. Uh, uh, what's good for my company is good for me. <laughs> You know, is that, is that collectivistic? I, I mean, it's it's a utopian collectivism, right? It's like a socialist sort of collectivism, and we can talk about China being socialist, but it's it's not what it's not what growing up in a rice village in China is like. You don't just a large organization. You don't just say, "Screw it, I don't care about myself, just whatever for the company." It's not. That's not what collectivism is. And it seems really problematic to have certain normative uh, normative assumptions about you know what culture is better than another because whatever your normative assumptions you're just gonna you know somehow interpret the data to fit it and come up with biased measures and it's just so a culture is such a complicated thing and I, I always find it funny when people are like what are the three dimensions along which you know these two cultures differ it's like it's, it's it's so much more complicated and so much richer than this which is which is which is a good thing right um, but but. Just to be clear, so you're saying responsibilism is a better word for collectivism, or should it be a word that exists alongside it? What, what is it? Yeah, term? I don't know. So, part of part of my argument in this in this domain is that if we keep using the word collectivism, it's going to keep ringing those intuitions. I don't know how you get around the fact that collective brings to mind large groups. And if, 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 I'm, if I'm right, that collectivism is really not about large group, groups. And when I say collectivism, I, I think what I mean is sort of cultural collectivism as exemplified by China, but, but probably also, and, and we can, I can talk about different countries that I've collected data in, but, but essentially a lot of uh, sort of traditional cultures out there. Um, but you know, East Asia is my main sort of reference point. But anyway, if we use this word collectivism, I just feel like it's, it's got this gravity to it. It's, it's sort of like walking, 
or maybe riding a bike on a, on a slope, you're, you can fight it for a little while. Like the listeners to this podcast can remember for the next week uh, that collect. Oh yeah. Thomas said collectivism is not about large groups, but sooner or later, we're going to slip back into this, this thing. Cause it's, it's, it's in the word, I think. And, and I'm not going to succeed at changing the connotations of the word collectivism. And I will probably also not succeed at getting people to use the word responsibilism, partly because it's, it's not an easy word to say. Um, it's hard to spell. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, the reason I thought of responsibilism is, is I thought, well, to me, it's a, it's a counterweight to the idea that collectivism is about positive emotions, right? Um, so you, you and I mentioned this sort of in the beginning, the idea that, the, you know, to me, pleasure is spending time with others. What, collectivism is not about having fun. It's not about liking other people. It's not about, you know, when I give this talk in China, I, I often say something like, you know, who do you think, you know, which culture in the United States or China, in which culture do you think parents more frequently end their phone calls with like, love you or miss you, right? That's the individualistic culture where you get more of that sort of positive emotion expression, right? And it's not to say that parents in China don't love their children. Of course they do. It's just the difference in, in how it's manifested. And, and I just don't think that positive emotion is even really a goal of, of collective. I think it's the wrong goal. I, I think of this when I, you know, East Asia in particular, uh, it scores less happy than it should be based on its wealth. So, so basically, if you take wealth to predict happiness around the world, wealth, you know, the wealth of the country, GDP per capita, predicts happiness. So wealthier countries are happy. But if you create a, you know, if you do a regression to predict, you know, given this amount of wealth, this is how happy these countries should be. Basically, all of East Asia is less happy than it should be. You know, even wealthy countries like Korea, Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, less happy than they should be. And I think part of the reason is, well, that's not, they never said that was their goal. It's us researchers that are saying, hey, a measure of a thriving society is, is self-report happiness. I think, I think in places like China, there's, you know, it's not to say that people are fine to be miserable, or, but it's, it's just not top of mind. I think it's not goal number one. So with responsibilism, I'm trying to emphasize the idea that, that I think one of the goals there I think one of the, the major functions of relationship is not to make people feel good. It's not to, so we can smile, but rather it's, it's duties and, and responsibilities to other people. And it, it really centers around times of need. I think, I think the, the most important times for this conception of, of, you know, friendship or family is, is when somebody really needs your help um, or when you do something not fun for somebody else. And so to me, that responsibilism gets at that. And then sort of by, by proxy, if we're defining relationships based on duties and responsibilities, it kind of automatically implies that you can't do that to everybody. And so I think it kind of nudges us in this direction of not thinking about large groups. Um, so that's the idea behind responsibilism. Um, if people end up using this word, I'll be so happy, but again, not predicting it. <laughs> It, it, it's so interesting because it goes really deep into how cultures differ, right? So, so what one answer to, well, Westerners just care more about happiness and like positive affects that, well, in East Asia, on average, people care more about the balance between positive and negative affect, right? 
want to be more balanced and you don't want to be all ecstatic. ecstatic. I remember when I got into grad school and I was telling a friend of mine who was from China and I was, well, I was full of positive emotions and I was really happy. And I was like, it's going to yeah. be great and everything's going to be wonderful. And she was like, well, you know, maybe something bad is going to happen. I was like, well, <laughs> like don't great, worry, thanks. nothing bad is going to happen. And then, you know, COVID happened. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not saying I regret being happy or, you know, ecstatic. And then maybe it was, it was not as perfect as I imagined my, my start into my PhD to be, but, you know, there are just different approaches and really hard to say, but, but what you seem to be saying is that this is still a somewhat like individual centered perspective. It's like, well, they care about other emotions that they as individuals want to have versus it's not really about the individual. It's really about the, not the collective, but the group, right? Certain, certain collective that people care about friends and family. And obligations yeah, and, and duties and responsibilities. And I would and I would also say that maybe emotion's not even the right word. Like like maybe that's not even the right category of goal. Um, I, so I'm not exactly sure what the goal is. If I'm rejecting sort of self-report happiness or like smiling as the as the outcome. Uh, by the way, I have a I have a study where we measured smiling in public uh, in China and the U.S. and it's way higher uh, in the in the U.S. Um, like twice twice as much. Um, so yeah, even, you know, even by smiling, um, you know, there, there are cultural differences, but I, so I wonder if emotion's not the right word for the right category for, for what the goal is. I think perhaps the goal is something like security or thriving, um, maybe some, something akin to success. I mean, if you see with, you know, immigrants to China or immigrants from China to the United States, uh, it seems like one of the things that they are really valuing is things like education for their kids and the, the careers that their children are able to attain. Is that happiness? I don't know. I, success, um, security, um, freedom from, from danger or, or risk. I, I think these are things that are probably accomplished. And, and I bet if we had, in addition to happiness measures across cultures, like the, you know, people's, ability to avoid catastrophe or, you know, mm. ability to be secure in some way. I bet these cultures would be thriving more than similarly wealthy cultures um, in other places for, for that reason. So I, I think it's some, some goal that's probably not in the emotion. Way. I mean, we could call security an emotion. I mean, it sort of is, mm. is an emotion, but uh, yeah, like a word that's used for very frequently in China is uh, like anxin, like, like peace, peaceful heart or peaceful mind. Um, but it also means often like sort of a relief, like, oh, I'm relieved that, you know, something bad didn't happen. It's, it's sort of the security mindset. I think that's, that's going on. And then this is still reflecting people's preferences. You know, we're still like, what are their preferences? What do they want to achieve in life? And then therefore they must act on it all the time because otherwise why would people ever do something? But, you know, oftentimes we do things out of peer pressure because our boss told us to do something. Um, so our our behavior doesn't necessarily reflect uh, our preferences, right? And, and and that seems to come into it. And I feel like I think you mentioned you have some some data on competition across cultures and uh, how maybe this very fact plays into it. That just because we behave in a certain way doesn't mean that we actually want to do this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a fun. So competition is a great another great example of why collectivism doesn't seem to work. So there, there's a study of, I don't know, 30, 40 nations, and they, they get people's um, attitudes on, on competition. And what they find is that individualistic cultures 
are you see, oh, sorry. the prediction the easy prediction is that individualism is associated with competition that individualists like to compete and if you know collectivism is about harmony and liking other people then they shouldn't like competition uh, or they shouldn't endorse competition um, but but it's in fact collectivistic cultures where people where researchers have found more competition both in games like where you're just looking at people's behavior um, and then also something that they call uh, zero-sum thinking basically the idea that if you gain something that's my loss or if i gain something then you you've lost right that we can't both win right and so it's people in collectivistic cultures that agree with that more right uh which is seems kind of like a contradiction um but one of the neat things about that though is that it would be a mis i argue that it would be a mistake to think that competitive behavior or endorsements about you know that zero sum thinking measure that isn't saying i like the world to be this way i want the world to be this way it's just a statement of i think the world is this way or i think things are generally this way but there's a there was a neat study where they also asked people how much they they you know they asked about competition. So like competition is a part of life is, is an, an item, right? Beliefs about the world. And then they also ask people like how much they enjoy competition. And people in East Asia do not like competition. They endorse it as a, an idea about reality. But what these surveys find is they don't like it. And there's even in the, in the last like 10, 20 years, a fair number of uh, parents in China are they're aware that the schooling system is very competitive and that could be bad for their children. And so one of the, one of the reasons that parents will want to send their kids to the West to get an education is partly just because it's less competitive and they think that's bad for, they think the competition is bad for their kids. Right. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not about liking it. I, that's another thing. If I can warn any, any young cultural psychologists out there is, is to not mistake a cultural difference for a preference or even a value, right? You don't even have to say that I, I value this thing. Um, it just, it's just a difference in, in, in beliefs, right? Some, sometimes, or even just behavior. Sometimes you don't even have to have a belief. It could just be a behavior that's different. One way I always like to think about culture is that it doesn't just exist between nations. You know, one, one nation has one culture and another nation has another culture. It exists within cultures, right? And, uh, you know, in individualistic uh, cultures, uh, people have a more independent self-definition, right? It's like, I am this individual, you know, in the society, I'm free-floating, I'm unconnected to everything versus more interdependent with like, what kind of person are you? Well, I'm the brother of this person and the son and the whatever it is, right? Um, and you find this across uh, social class, for example, that yeah. people who hire in social class, they tend to be more independent, have a more independent self-definition, all these different things. And so drawing the analogy here, it's almost like looking at people who are in lower class and have to take up three jobs just because they, you know, it's the only way for them to survive and be like, oh, they must really like working a lot, right? Like, yeah, oh. no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they, yeah. they have to survive. It's, it's a really bad take on it, right? And it's, it's just your preferences don't even come to matter because you just yeah. have to do it if you want it or not. That's a great example just to show the, the absurdity of inferring a preference from a, from a behavior like that. That's just, that's just absurd. You know, and I, I liked what you're saying there about variation within countries. I was just reading a paper uh, the other day that, so they, they've got like happiness and some other measures across cultures. And then they were calculating, okay, 
how much variation in happiness is there within countries? So between different Americans, for example, versus between different countries, you know, how different is like America and China, for example. And what they said is they found that, oh, there's a lot more variation between individuals than there is between, between nations. And so they said, so therefore, you know, it, it's something like, you know, individual variability is, is far more important. Let's think about that for a second. Just because it's varying within the United States, does that mean it's not culture? Right. Does that mean that like, okay, the only thing that's left after you, you know, cut the border around the United States, therefore it's not culture. Right. Now you could say something like national culture. Right. Um, But it's so easy. I I just want to say like, it's so easy for for me. I've probably read papers that have done that exact same thing and just not even thought about it. Right. It's really easy to gloss over that that idea that like, oh, well, if it's, if it's, you know, oh, if anybody knows the behavioral genetics twin studies, right, where they, they take twins, you know, raised together or or raised by different parents. Um, When when I was at Virginia for grad school, uh, Eric Turkheimer's office was like two doors down from mine. And he's a, a big name in the, in these twin studies and behavioral genetics. And one day I like, I went into his office. He was super nice guy. I'd always, always happy to chat. And I like walked into his office and I said, Eric, I, I'm having trouble understanding these twin studies. Can you just confirm like this thing that I'm thinking? In these twin studies, people are not being adopted across nations generally, right? Uh, most twin studies are done within a single nation. So, and then what these twin studies do is they say, okay, oh, they label the difference in uh, genes versus environment. And environment would theoretically include culture. Mm-hmm. I said, wait, wait a second, you're not getting the full if everybody is being raised in American culture and generally even often within a single state as well, not even the full breadth of the United States, but even, even if we just have anywhere in the U S that seems like a really, we've really limited the scope of culture that we're trying to measure. And if you're going to limit the variability on that, yeah, you're probably going to not find a whole lot of variability from the environment. And that's what those studies find. They say, Oh, genes are really important and environment doesn't really matter. But like, I don't know, let's, let's take one kid and have them go to, you know, have them live with the Hadza, you know, <laughs> semi-nomadic in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And then, you know, the other one to, I don't know, Palo Alto, where you are, right? This is going to be really different. Um, but, you know, people don't study that, but, you know, because it's hard. <laughs> Not, you know, no shade against the behavioral genetics. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff in that research. It's just that it, it's just, a, it's, it's an assumption that's sort of built into the model um, that we need to just remind ourselves of every once in a while. I'm curious as to why we think collectivism is this uh, utopian socialism where everyone gets along. What is it? Is it this, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side effect where we're like, Oh my God, this alternative world is just a utopia and it would be great. And if so, do we have it the other way around? The people in collectivist cultures are like, Oh my God, individualism is, is, is all wonderful and it's, it's they have a totally oh, wrong understanding and neither need another word for individualism i've never thought about that that's really funny yeah to think about like man it'd be so great to like do your own thing if i can if i can uh, tell a personal story from uh, misaki yuki i hope he's okay with this uh, misaki yuki is a researcher cultural psychologist in japan and he's from the tokyo region but he now lives in Hokkaido in northern, far northern Japan. 
And to any cultural psychologists out there, this is going to be ringing bells because Hokkaido is famous in Japan for being individualistic, independent place. It's on the outskirts of Japan. It's kind of wild in a way. It wasn't settled until by uh, sort of ethnic Japanese people until the 1800s. Uh, which is quite late. I mean, Japan is a, is, has had a long history. Um, and, and just in terms of my own research, uh, Tokyo is, uh, so most of Japan is rice farming. And, you know, I, my research is about how rice farming is, is collectivistic, but particularly the Tokyo region, that's some of the highest uh, percentage of, of rice farming. So basically you take a, a person from Japan, Masaki, who grew up in a very strong rice region and then moves to the part of Japan that is the most different from that, the most individualistic from that. And so I asked him, I said, what do you, like, what, what is it like for you to live in these places, especially as somebody who's kind of aware of these differences? And he said, he, what he said, I, I, I loved it. He goes, he goes, you know, one thing I don't like about Hokkaido is when you want something, you have to ask for it. Mm. And I was like, that's okay. That's weird. Like, what, what do you mean? And he's like, well, in Tokyo, if, if I, I just kind of like think about something or like look at something the right way, then people kind of know. And they're like, oh, you want this? And I'm like, thanks. But in Hokkaido, like you, you have to tell people that you want it and otherwise you're not going to get it. And, and I thought like, man, that's, isn't that a great, like, because the complaint that, that had always occurred to me in, as an American living in China is that is the assumption that I would want things or that people would give me things that I didn't want. And it's sort of like, can you just ask me what I want? Right. Like I would be taken on, um, you know, like trips places. Like I had, I had a, I had a host once I was traveling in China. I had a host who was a friend of a friend and he just wouldn't ask me like what I wanted to do in the day. He'd just be like, all right, Thomas, we're, we're going. And I'd get in the car and he would take me someplace. And I was like, kind of annoyed. It's like, why? can't I tell you like the types of things that I like to do and then we can go there. But in retrospect, it, he, I think he was being a really good host. I think he was really putting in the effort to try to anticipate what it was that I want or what it would, it would be that any visitor would, would want the sort of, you know, what are the famous things in this city and things like that. Um, and it was so neat to kind of hear it from the opposite side that like even being at like in Masaki's head, like being asked what you want is, is not a, is he, he wasn't feeling that as man people really respect my opinion he was saying like oh it's such a burden to have to explain this you mm. should just know right like that's it, so I, w- when you ask this like what is the grass always greener i i loved masaki's uh uh reflection there because i thought i thought that was like man that that's a great defense of this sort of tight tight relationship collectivism um and a, and a sort of a, a great criticism of of individualism my I really love that. It, oh, if I can tell another story, my, my friend David, um, he was my roommate uh, living in China when I was, uh, you know, early on living in China. Um, he he eats a lot. He's, uh, you know, he's athletic, fairly hungry, hungry guy, uh, kind of like myself. He was on a plane once, I think flying to China and they gave him the, the meal on the airplane. And if you're like an athletic guy, that is not enough food for you for the next eight hours or whatever. And so he just, boom, he just finished the whole, the whole tray. And he said, he, he kind of wears his heart on his sleeve. Like his emotions just go straight to his face sometimes. And he said, he like looked for, you know, finished the whole tray, looked forlornly at his empty tray and then noticed across the aisle that the woman across the aisle had finished maybe like 10% of her tray. 
And he kind of just like looked at her tray a little bit and then looked back at his own. And as his face was looking down at his own tray, out of the side of his vision, he saw the woman's tray get put onto his plate, on, onto his, you know, seat back tray thing. And the, basically what happened is the, the woman had seen his expression, correctly intuited what, what he was feeling, and then offered him her food, which I guess, I don't know if she like didn't want it or just thought like, you need this more than me, something like that. Uh, that's that's it right like that's that's sort of the grass is greener um I, I often feel like when i'm in china if if i have a friend who can speak chinese and english i often if if i'm feeling tired like i've had a long day and i just don't want to like explain things in detail i'll often switch to chinese because i feel like i can be a little bit more sparse mm. and get away with it <laughs> if that makes sense because the other I, I think part of it is that my my interlocutor, uh, the you know my speech partner, will try a little bit harder to understand what I'm saying. Whereas I think in America it's kind of like leaning back and just like, all right, tell me. And mm. if it's not clear, then you're going to have to rephrase it. You know. Um, so yeah, I think that's part of the part of the the grass is greener side. That really has me reflect on my entire year in Peru and on all the obligations that I missed out on and all the all the expectations that people had where you know they they you know they kind of ask you a question but they don't really ask because they just expect you to do it. Right? It's like the when I had to play Santa Claus for like a hundred kids and I was the only white guy in town and I was like taller <laughs> than everyone. I was like, I'm the last person who should play Santa Claus. All the all the poor children, they will know that Santa Claus is not real. <laughs> like, it's, it's not really a question <laughs> you just do it <laughs> use your hat and everything um it also reminds me of a friend who came to visit me in peru uh she was staying with a, a peruvian family who i was friends with and i was like that's great and let's meet tomorrow after your jet lag and <laughs> next day i met her and in her arms she had like both of the babies of the family and I was oh, like, wow. oh wow you've been incorporated into the family and she was like yeah well we visited grandma in the hospital today and i was like, oh, great wow. first. <laughs> I was like right to it it's like super nice, but you know, she, she wasn't really asked what she wanted to do. She was just, she was just there for the ride and she loved it. But you know, it's, it's, it's certainly something that wouldn't happen in, in Germany or in, or in the United States. I hear you. Yeah. So the, if I can tie a bow on the, the responsibilism uh, idea there. So we've talked a bit today about how uh, not to get too academic, but we, we've talked about how like the, type of relationship matters, right? Is it a stranger? Or is it somebody that I know? Um, and you brought up something early on that, that I, I kind of glossed over, but I think it's important, which is that some of these questions on these surveys are also really abstract or sort of ambiguous, right? Things like, um, oh, one, of the, one of the things, my, my favorite example of this is, um, I like to do my own thing, or like it's, I, I often do my own thing, I think is one of the, the, the scale items. What does do my own thing? What does that mean? Right. I mean, first of all, it's bad because it's kind of colloquial. And you don't, if you're going to use a scale across cultures, you, you want to avoid really colloquial terms because those are going to be hard to translate and make them equivalent. But do my own thing. Like I I kind of feel like that's one of these things where that could lead to really different concrete imaginations, right? You know, in America, it'd be like maybe some extreme example would be like, you know, I like ran away from home for a year and like lived on a organic farm or something like that. And in China, it might be like, sometimes I do my homework an hour later or something, you know, <laughs> like it could be, it, 
who knows, right? And people have their different references. And so there's this great paper by, uh, great study by Kaiping Peng, um, who worked with Richard Nesbitt at, at Michigan. And what he does is he, he, he tests people in the US, China, and Singapore, and he asks them these abstract questions like, how important is you know, freedom to you? How important is in, interdependence to you? Things like that. And what he shows is that the results are a big mess. Um, I, I, if I remember correctly, I think people in China said that ind- independence was more important than Americans, uh, which just seems like that that's, doesn't seem right, right? Mm-hmm. And part of his argument is, well, those are too abstract. Well, what if we ask people really concrete situations and really concrete scenarios? And what he does is he, he crafts scenarios where it's like a paragraph. I mean, so it's, it's a bad scale in the sense that you have to read a whole story if to read a mini story. But then it says, okay, what would you what would you do in that situation? And when the situation was really defined concretely like that, then they found the expected cultural differences. Once people were on the same page, under truly understanding sort of what what what's in the researcher's mind, because now there's no longer ambiguity. You know, where are you? Who are you? Who is this with? How long have you known that person? What are the concrete behaviors that you're proposing? Then the cultural differences start to appear. And so when I, when I came along sort of recently uh, with my experience in, in living in China and this, this background of these scales not working, I, I sort of took one piece from uh, this sort of relationships and, and then another piece from you know, responsibilities and relationships and also who are we talking about, you know, friend versus stranger, family. Um, I took a bit of that, that sort of emotion work where it's saying it's not about being happy, so let's get rid of the items that, that are about, you know, saying I love you and, 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 you know, I'm so happy when I'm with other people. Um, and then I took a little bit of the Kaiping Pung stuff where I'm saying, you know, yeah, I think, I think we need to ask about concrete situations so that we're, we're sure that people in China and people in the U S are, are conceiving of the same thing. And what I did is, so I created a scale with something like 34 items. So 34 of those long sort of vignettes, these stories, uh, to, to give people. And, just tried to create a scale that was based on responsible questionnaire because one of the neat things, if you, if you look back at the research, so if I can totally oversimplify cultural psychology, um, there was this res- sort of resurgence of cultural psychology around the eighties, nineties. That's when a lot of these scales were created. The, you know, to me, pleasure is spending time with others um, to, to measure collectivism. So first there's like the flurry of scales, like in the nineties. And then by around the two thousands, late, late 2000s when I came along, enough studies had been done where researchers could put them all together and say, do these, you know, if you, if you take 30 samples in America and 30 samples in China, Japan, Korea, are, are there differences? And, and what they find is like several studies found, no, actually. Uh, Steve Heine has a study where he says it's, it's basically like flipping a coin, whether America is more collectivistic or China is more collectivistic. Like it's just, it just, it, they, they, they're not working, right? And so there was a mini crisis, I think, in cultural psychology. And you can respond to that. I think there are two ways that that make sense to respond to that, that are intuitive. One is to say, oh, maybe these scales are right and we're wrong. Everybody thought China was collectivistic, but it's not. You know, Japan is supposed to be interdependent, but it's not. Scales are right, we're wrong. Um, Most people don't like that one. Um, In fact, I don't know any researcher who's gone down that path, but you could, right? You could look at the data and say that you could choose that path. 
Second path is to say, oh, it's a problem of self-report. You can't use these scales, these questionnaires to measure culture because of all these, all these different reasons. Some, some people say it's because people in, in East Asia tend to use the middle of scales. They like to be kind of like moderate and, you know, middle way, right? Whereas Americans tend to like extremely agree or extremely disagree, right? They call that response style bias. Um, other people said that, oh, it's because people are implicitly comparing themselves to other people in, in the same culture. So if you ask me, Thomas, how, how individualistic are you? Well, maybe I'll think of other Americans who tend to be individualistic. And then, so then maybe I'm not so individualistic, right? Maybe I'm, you know, oh, my favorite example of this one is uh, I've had so many friends in China tell me, you know, Chinese people are very weiwan. They're, uh, they're indirect um, in their communication. But I, I am very direct. And then like two days later, that person, you know, does something totally indirect with me. And to me, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, you're not, you're not this like straight shooter, tell it like it is. But I, I kind of wonder if that person is like, if those friends of mine are, are sort of, they have in their mind something like their grandmother or, you know, popular conceptions of communication in China, something like that. And so by that comparison, yeah, you're a straight shooter. But by the comparison, in my mind, you're not. Um, so, so you get this comparison. So anyway, lots of people went down this path number two, which is that uh, the problem is the, the microscope. The microscope that we're using has, is, is flawed. Um, so that's the problem. And I, I think there's, there's definitely something to be said for, for everything that I just said, um, the, the microscope problem. But listeners by this point probably figured it out. I think my response is, is a third way, which is to say it was the concept that was wrong. We were measuring the wrong idea of collectivism. We were measuring utopian socialism where we should have been measuring the sort of tight tie responsibilism. And so that, that was what this project has been about for me is to say, okay, well, actually we can still use self-report, this easy, cheap, super, you know, starter DIY way to do research, uh, we can still use that if we just make sure we've, we've written the correct questions um, on the right, the right concept. And so that's what I did. I wrote a bunch of questions that I thought were on the right concept. Um, and, and also I stole some from Kaiping Pung stuff about make the situation really concrete. And then what I've done in this project is I've given it to something, gosh, I think we have data from almost 30 countries now. And what I keep finding over and over again is that cultures that are, I don't know, quote unquote, supposed to be collectivistic, um, they, they do show up as collectivistic on my responsibilism scale. And the ones that are, you know, supposed to be individualistic, they score really low on this scale. And like you were saying, it's, it's also, you know, within nations. So you get things like, um, uh, so I went to a really diverse college in the United States, lots of uh, second generation immigrants, people, first generation college students. And they scored as you know, more responsibilistic than, you know, University of Michigan undergrads, for example. Um, another one is it, it picks up reliably on liberal conservative differences. Um, so I, uh, this is sort of a whole another story in and of itself. But I, I argue that liberals are the sort of individualistic ones in the United States and conservatives are the more collectivistic ones. Um, if we understand collectivism is about sort of tight ties and duties to other people, and individualism is sort of about personal freedom, doing, doing what I want, um, that sort of thing. And so the scale reliably picks up on differences within cultures as well. So we know that it's not just some, 
you know, weird thing about, you know, Turkey and China versus the United States. Like, no, this is, a, this is a construct that works, you know, even among people speaking the same language who, you know, all know what a Ford fusion and the Chicago bears, you know, it, it still works then as well. Um, so yeah, so that's basically the idea of responsibilism. I, I, I hope that I can evangelize this to, to, to more people because honestly, I think it's, it's, I've talked to too many researchers who've wasted time, their time with this, these scales or just sort of the wrong footing about what collectivism should be. You know, it's like, there's this great paper on uh, whether liberals or conservatives, liberals or conservatives in the United States, who's more collectivistic. And it says like, well, you know, conservatives have some collectivistic tendencies, but, but liberals really like welfare. So, you know, who knows? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. And me as a reader, I'm like, no, that, no, do you get it? Like, like welfare is like definitionally collectivistic. Yes. But culturally not collectivistic. Right. Because so strangers, it's, it's an abstract impersonal system where benefits are sort of working through a system. They're going to people that you don't know. Um, I don't think that's what collectivism is, is about. It's, it's actually individualists who see, you know, everybody as equal units, relationships don't matter. Um, the one that supports welfare, like, like an impersonal welfare system, right? Um, so I, I think if, if we could start with this sort of responsibilism mindset uh, concept, we would avoid apparent contradictions like uh, how, you know, how come, how come liberals support welfare? Uh, it makes total sense. Hallelujah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that sounds like a, like a goal to research. That, that's a... Yeah, it's a great, great note to end on. And by the way, the more I think about it, the more I think responsibilism is a word that people can pronounce. We have <laughs> academic terms that are so much harder to pronounce. <laughs> I, th I, I think like we're, we're good on that front. Um, but I want to give you a chance to, to you know, state some, some final words, something you want to leave the listeners with. Um, if you feel like you want to add something or, you know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, hopefully there are like young researchers out there listening to this. Um, maybe people who haven't even been to grad, grad school yet. Um, if you're interested in culture or even just, I don't know, psychology in general, the, the one piece of advice I'd, I'd really give to people is really try to go out there and waste, waste your time, really waste some time. Whether that's, you know, spending time in Peru or teaching English in China or I don't know, go somewhere else and just experience something, especially without a real clear purpose, I think is, is, mm -hmm. is really helpful. The problem is people who myself included, like when I was an undergrad, I had this idea that I wanted to go into research and I wanted to do a PhD, but my dad, my dad happens to have a PhD as well. Um, and he told me, he was like, Hey, don't get your PhD right away. Like go out and do something, make sure you really want to do a PhD. And his advice always made sense to me logically but emotionally hell no i did not want to go do what do what with my undergrad degree what what job am i going to get who's going to hire me what am i going to do can i still get into grad school after i'm out like isn't it easier what about the gre what am i going to do all of those fears were in my mind and yet in yet logically i kind of knew that he was right but it was so hard to want to put that in practice so if there's anybody out there who's facing that dilemma please, please push yourself in that direction. Find something to do, whether it's, whether it's teaching, whether it's a job, whether it's volunteering, because 
that sort of rich life experience, I, I think you will look back on it. it I'll, I'll put it this way. If you imagine going to do that, what are the odds that at the end of that year or two, you're going to turn around and go, you know what? I really didn't learn anything. Nothing of import. You know, I didn't, it didn't change my horizon. Of course not. Right. I mean, of, of course you're going to feel like it, it was really helpful. Um, and, I, and I think that's not just a bias. I mean, I think that's true. I mean, I think it really, really do learn things. And so if, if you deign, like I did, to understand how humans work, go out there and see how humans work. You know, go do that. And, and you'll get into grad school and it'll be fine. <laughs> like everything's going to be fine. Take the GRE before you go. Um, I remember Norbert Schwartz. Uh, so he's a, a sort of famous social psychologist. Uh, he told me at the time, because I was worried about it, I said, you know, is this going to be bad for me if I if I leave for a year or two and then apply? And he said, he said, listen, as long as you're not sitting on a beach somewhere, you're good. And I think he was right. I think he was right. So um, I support you. And if, if there's anybody young out there having this debate, send me, and you're still not convinced, send me an email and I will, <laughs> I will berate you further. I mean, encourage you further. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, hallelujah again. I, I I can I can only agree. That's perfect note to end on. Thank you, Thomas. It was a really fun chat. Great. Well, thanks for having me.